Hello, I'm Morris Mendoza at Judge Business School, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Stelios Zyglodopoulos, who is a lecturer in strategy at Judge Business School in Cambridge. Dr. Zyglodopoulos' research focuses, amongst other things, on managing corporate reputation, and today we are here to discuss his work on ethics in organisations. Dr. Zyglodopoulos, thank you for joining us. So in one of your uh, recent papers, um, you have explored the, uh, what you term uh, bad apples, the people within organisations such as Enron who helped to contribute to its uh, downfall, if you like, who ended up becoming corrupt in one form or another. Um, could you explain, uh, to start off, what drove you into looking at this particular aspect of corporate life? Well, the main interest that we had in studying this phenomenon with my colleague, uh, Peter Fleming, which we've done this work with, is the evolution of corruption within organizations. In other words, in Enron, as many people say, and you said uh, in a previous discussion we had that Kenneth Lay and a few people at the top basically brought the whole organization down. It is, it is quite true. But also what is more interesting for our purposes is how other people were pulled in this sort of continuum of destruction by a few bad apples. Because let's face it, the, those few people by themselves could not have done the damage they did if not a lot of people collaborated with them, either consciously or without really knowing what they were getting into. So that was a process that interests us a lot, this process of how they were able to pull in people mm -hmm. into this uh, sort of corrupt uh, organization that became in the end. And you, you mentioned there continuum of destructiveness. I think a lot of people will not be familiar with that term. Is, is that a term that's used uh, in, within the academic sphere or is that something new that you... Well, it's a term that is being used uh, in, in a sense to, to um, describe how people move slowly from being completely innocent bystanders who don't really know that they are actually participating in this to being slowly coming into some sort of rationalization about what they have already done and trying to feel good with themselves that they really are not so bad as they, th they might think they are, eventually to becoming full-blown corrupt and sort of crossing the line and participating in this with their eyes open in a sense. And, and one of the things that, that fascinated us in this sort of continuum is a term that we use, that we developed, um, sort of the ethical distance, what we call, the distance between the individual's acts and his or her uh, consequences of these acts. And especially in these in this large organizations, this distance can be huge. So these people do not actually see the consequences of their acts. Therefore, they are easy, it's easier for them to take the next step. And you've talked um, essentially that many of the people who become corrupt were good people. I think you say that in Enron, many of them were churchgoers. Uh, and, and that may surprise a lot of people to think that you can start off um, as perfectly honest uh, with the right intentions and so on and then be shifted along this continuum of, of destructiveness. Can, can you describe how this happens? And it's not something engineered from the top, is it? It's a sort of gradual process. It, it is a gradual process, you're right, and it is not engineered from the top. The, thing, the, the, the issue here, I think, is that these people do not see what they're doing, and they're eventually, through habituation, getting used to certain norms, certain more slack norms, and eventually they get caught into this. So at the end of the day, they do not see what, what's going on. There's a quote from this uh, book that was written about Enron, 
And this manager was saying, you did it once, it smelled bad. You did it again and again and again, and it just stopped smelling anymore. So you just kept on doing it. And, and it was, that was the, the issue, I think, that the, these people were facing. And, and it's, a, it's a basic human nature that we can get habituated to a lot of things. Some of them not very good, unfortunately, but it's there. It is in our, in our nature to be able to do that. And you talk about um, how, how that process works on an individual basis. And I think you talk about the incentive to lie and you talk about rationalization or the rationalizations we make to ourselves. How does that work? Well, there is, a, in a sense, from what we've seen from these this extraordinary cases, and, and don't let me imply here that these are cases that are very common. These are extreme cases. I mean, most organizations are quite ethical and things work out fine. Just that in these extreme cases, what we've seen is quite often we see a positive feedback loop between um, people do something for an incentive and then they're not really willing to live with the fact that they did something wrong, so they rationalize it. But once they rationalize it, it's not wrong anymore, so they're willing to take the further step. And if they take the further step, again, are they willing to live with the consequences? Well, no. They say, well, let's rationalize that. And once you rationalize that, you've rationalized something else. So then it keeps moving. And they see how easy they rationalize it, so there's a, a sort of a, a learning there that goes on. And that's how many people move down this, what we call the continuum of destructiveness. Can you, uh, just so that listeners can sort of picture it in their minds, can you describe how this happens? So in a company like Enron, for instance, what, what's going on? For example, in Enron, there were a lot of factors from the individual's point of view and from the structural point of view that interacted. And um, the best way to picture this is like imagining why some accidents happen. Because there's a very tightly coupled system with not enough uh, room for things to recover. And all of those things interact together, and nobody ever thought that all of those coincidences would happen together and we would have an accident. Similar situation in Enron. You had a few people in the top that were trying to push the organization in a, to present the organization rather as something that it was not. It was not a high-tech company. It was a trading company at best or a, a gas company. Was, you know, completely different from what it actually was. So if you are such a company, you cannot have the double, triple, whatever digit um, growth rate that they were selling to the stock market or to, the, to uh, Wall Street. And having caught into this gap, the easier way to hide this gap or to cover this gap was by cheating at the financial resources. How do you cheat at the financial resources? We're a little bit at first. But then if you're in this gap, you cannot correct it. There's no way that you will make up next quarter because you can't. It's impossible. It's like pretending you don't have a heart attack. You won't get better just pretending. So eventually they got caught up in this loop and they got worse and worse and worse and eventually the whole thing collapsed. But can you explain how that spreads out to more than one person? Because you may have people who have to take the big decisions at the top and they are going to be um, deceiving in the way that you're saying. How does that, and as you say, they need to then depend on many other people within the organization to support them or at least not to blow the whistle. So how do they, how does that spread out? Well, first of all, um, it spreads out through the fact that these people at the top, they cannot do a lot on their own. They need, because of the nature of their organizations, they, 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 have, they need more and more people to do things. So it's limited to how much damage an individual can do. The banker at the Bearings Bank is an exception because he brought down the whole, the whole company. But that's an exception. Usually, people on their own cannot really do that much damage. 
the problem we see here is that uh, these people managed through the um, recruitment of a lot of other people. And some of these people were just facilitating what they didn't know was wrong. They were just going along. Some of them were sort of semi-rationalizing it and so on. But these processes allows them to mobilize a lot more people in an organized structure and do a lot more damage. In a sense, it's like using a, a sophisticated weapon to cause damage. Because organizations, business organizations, that's what they are. They're sophisticated tools that we have come up in our society to achieve things that we cannot achieve individually. And what this, when an organization goes wrong, it can go really wrong and you can have really a lot of problems. And one individual can do limited damage and an organization can do a lot of damage. So that is what they managed to do. And, and um, the way that this spread was through people didn't really want to see it. People couldn't see it. They had a very, very um, limited view of what they saw. Therefore, they didn't have access to the consequences of their actions. So they were saying, well, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, we did this. So what? So that's what you refer to as ethical distance. Exactly. The further you are away from the consequences. And complex organizations allow you to be further away from the consequences because you only see a small part of the puzzle. You don't know where that fits. And then even if you start suspecting where that fits, it's very easy to rationalize, like, well, altogether we cheated a hundred dollars. I ended up getting one. What's the big deal? You know, one dollar. What is the con- contribution of that? So something like that is is what made them end up uh, facilitating this corruption. So that leads on to uh, your prescription, if you like, for how companies can prevent this happening: is to be more open, to be more transparent, to be simplistic, to be to not overcomplicate things. Absolutely. If it gets complicated, there is a there's a a significant problem there. I mean, things have to be simple, have to be obvious. If somebody tells you our strategy is too complicated, you cannot understand it, don't buy their share. Just go away. This is not the point. It has to be simple. You have to be able to explain it to everybody, including your mailman. That's the first advice everybody gives when you do your PhD. You have to be able to explain your dissertation to your mailman. If you can't, you're not there yet. Well, that's the same thing about strategies of organizations. You must be able to explain it in simple terms, and everybody must be able to see the consequences of what they're doing. So, in a sense, what I'm saying here is what what, um, the Russian president, the last one, was Gorbachev, that says about glasnost. Well, that's what's needed. If you don't have that, if you don't have this transparency, you end up in problems and you have potentially such situations. Does that mean companies should have a rigid code of ethics? I think that's something you talk about. I don't like the word rigid because it implies that um, if you do something a little bit wrong, you're out. So that, that's a problem with rigidness. But uh, they should have a code of ethics that should be very explicit, very obvious and very much discussed among the people of the organization. I mean, there was um, some people have suggested that uh, they should have an ethics hotline anonymous hotline you can call up and you can say well this is an issue I'm facing what do you think I should do here what do you think I should do there so you can uh, have some assistance Um, what's your sense of uh, how many potential Enrons there are out there do you think this is a widespread danger or do you think this is something that as in human nature this is always going to be possible generally companies have got to grips with this problem I wouldn't uh, say one or the other. I would say that uh, a lot of companies are pretty working pretty well. They're pretty ethical. Enrons are not very common, fortunately. But the possibility for an Enron will always be there. So in a sense, that is a, a good thing and a bad thing. A good thing because we should all be on our toes. A bad thing because you see the damage that uh, companies like Enron do. Do you have any sense from the research you've done as, as to why people are whistleblowers? What, what lies behind that? 
Actually, uh, whistleblowers is an interesting phenomenon because usually it, uh, by the time you get there, the problem is so bad that it really doesn't rectify the situation. Usually it's, it's quite bad. So, And also whistleblowers at the end of the day tend to suffer themselves. So it is not a, it is a problem. What do you do with that? Because you have to sort of have some kind of a, rehabilitation problem of whistleblowers, something to enable them to work in an organization again, because organizations tend not to take them or something like that. It's a, very, it's a big problem for whistleblowers, what, what, do you, what happens with them afterwards. Also, another issue is that um, we shouldn't get there. The whole idea is that we shouldn't get there. The more we can prevent from depending on the odd whistleblower, which is actually random. There is no, no clear-cut understanding about why some people become whistleblowers and why not. So, we shouldn't get to that point. We should try to stop it along the way. Mm. And there are a lot of moderating circumstances, a lot of factors, a lot of control systems that we can implement along the way so that we stop such kind of corrupt activities or corruptions within organization much earlier on before it becomes a full-blown Enron. What you focus on in this paper is um, the danger of a company like Enron, which uh, is deceptive about financial information. Uh, and you talk, uh, well, you mention attention between the desire to provide the information the shareholders want on a quarterly basis and the need to oversee your, co- your ethical behavior within your organization. And those two things are at odds very often. They are at odds because uh, quite often the focus is on the performance, the ends. And not a lot of these uh, systems that we have to control are focusing on the means. So if you focus on the ends, there's a tendency to overlook the means. And if you have this quarterly requirements that you have, you, you tend to lose track of the means to which you deliver these requirements, especially if you put yourself in a situation like Enron, which was artificially inflated. They were, by definition, giving themselves something they could not meet. They were telling the stock market, we're going to achieve this. They were in an industry that they couldn't achieve this, by definition almost. The two didn't meet. Something had to give. So they had to, they eventually they ended up cheating on the means. So we must focus, I think, our control systems more on the means of achieving achieving that. And you cannot have that um, very much on the financial side of the control systems. That's why you need an ethical code to be able to sort of interact with the formal control systems and control these uh, the means through which you achieve something. Well, thank you, Dr. Zigliotopoulos. Thank you very much. Thank you.